a Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora everybody and welcome to our third episode of Does This, this Count, count as Study? <laughs> We're joining you virtually today. It's a bit of a different setup thanks to COVID, but that's all right. We're trying out new things. Um, today we have a super, super exciting guest, Dr. Annika Sepler. Welcome. Thank you. It's really uh, an honour to be here. Yeah, well, so, it's an honour to um, have you. Yeah, Annika was one of my professors last year. We did environmental physics together and seriously awesome paper, seriously awesome lecturer. And, yeah, do you want to say a little bit about yourself, what you do and kind of how you got to where you are? Uh, yeah, sure. So I am currently working at the physics department at Otago, uh, one of the academics. Um, so... The research that I do is kind of looking at our space environment, um, the atmosphere and climate and how all those three things are connected. So I do lots of research on looking at how activity in the sun, which is one of the things that causes aurora, actually changes the chemical balance of the atmosphere and how that might be linked to climate. So I did this um, source of research. I started for my PhD quite some time ago. And uh, so I did my PhD in Finland. Once I finished, I went to the UK. I worked with the British Antarctic Survey, continuing on this research. And that pathway led me to New Zealand. So I was lucky enough to visit New Zealand a couple of times when I was working on my PhD. And I just loved it here. So when Otago had uh, an opening available for academic staff at the physics department, I was like, yes, I want that. I, I want to come to New Zealand. And I really loved it here. And uh, I love teaching. Um, I teach environmental physics, like you said, Henry, but I also teach first year physics, computational physics, and I teach space and atmospheric physics as well. So it's kind of all things that I really link quite nicely to my research. And it's exciting. Whoa. It's great. <laughs> Whoa. And it kind of sounds like you didn't really have a set like pathway forward. It just kind of opened up and you were like, yes, I'll take this chance to go to New Zealand. Would that be right? Yeah. Yes, um, it's one of those things that I've noticed that quite a few researchers have actually kind of found their right place. They've just gone with the flow, like if an opportunity comes up, take that. And that would also be my advice to anyone studying now. It's like, just don't stress too much about where you're going to end up. Just look at those opportunities that are coming along as you're going on your path. And if it looks interesting, grab that and, and go with that. And that's taken me to where I want to be. Um, you really have found something interesting because um, I had a quick look at how auroras are created and, and what they are and what they do. And I've found it so interesting. I've done actually, I've been procrastinating by looking at all that, all the stuff. Um, but yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about how they are created and what they are? Uh, so what the aurora tells us like. I've got this background. If you listen to this, you won't see it. But it's a picture of Aurora that I took in Lapland. Um, I love the Aurora because it's telling us that sun is affecting our atmosphere the whole time. So Aurora is actually generated by charged particles, so basically electrons that have originally come from the sun. So sun's throwing out these particles all the time. We call it the solar wind. So it's like wind, but it's made out of um, charged particles. And they are traveling in space, slamming to Earth's magnetosphere, which guides them to the polar regions. And as they get close to the atmosphere, they start 
um, putting their energy into the atmosphere. So they energize the atoms and molecules in the atmosphere and ionize them. And what the aurora is, is the light that is released when those, once those atoms and molecules actually return to their regular state. So they release photons and we see that as a light. So if you're looking at aurora, you can think that all oh, that's, that was caused by an electron that came from the sun and ended up in our atmosphere. Oh my gosh. And we can see these awesome things and you can see all different colors depending on which atmospheric atom or molecule was impacted. Such a cool concept. Um, you said previously the other day that um, you can even see it from Dunedin, right? Yes, you can. You can absolutely say we can see it about three times a week on average. Uh, three times? A real, yeah, we're in a really uh, great position actually for it because there's basically nothing between us and Antarctica. So it's just like this empty ocean that even if they're happening quite far away we have this clear horizon and we can see the aurora so the university has got this awesome website called aurora alert um, .target.ac.nz and you can go and check it out to see what the situation is at the moment so it gives you a likelihood of seeing the aurora of course we need Brilliant. to have a clear sky if it's cloudy um, so that or was it otago.aurora.ac.nz? There's also, if you happen to use Twitter, you can subscribe to Twitter alerts. So it will let you know whenever there's a chance of seeing the Aurora. Oh, brilliant. Oh, yeah, that'll be incredible for students. Of Hopefully when we get to lower levels, they can go check it out. Yeah. yeah. So we've also had, on top of being a leading researcher in auroras, you've also got quite a lot of knowledge about the ozone layer and how it was created and stuff. So we are quite curious in what is the current state of the ozone layer in New Zealand? Uh, currently, so check this out earlier on today. So we actually got slightly lower amounts of ozone that we normally have this time of year. Um, we got measurements that are made in central targets at Lauder, NIWA, which is the Atmos um, National Institute for Atmospheric and Ocean Research. Um, they do these measurements with balloons from Lauder frequently, and they have these available online, so you can always check what the ozone layer is doing. So currently it's, it's lower than it typically is, but it's not drastically low, so it's still within kind of long-term ranges. The ozone hole over Antarctica is actually quite big this year, unfortunately. Mm. So, so you mentioned unfortunately. So kind of what is the problem with the ozone layer in New Zealand? New Zealand will just have to kind of follow what happens with it. Um, the big ozone hole over Antarctica can sometimes affect us so we can have these kind of low pockets of ozone that drift over us because we're so close to Antarctica. Um, but for New Zealand specifically, because we have slightly lower ozone amounts, we're also close to the sun during summer and spring. And our skies are really clear. So because of those factors, we end up getting quite high UV levels 
in New Zealand. That's why you hear all these slip, slap, flop and crap to protect yourself. Mm. So ozone and having these really clear skies causes that. What's the history? Like, because we, I've obviously heard that the ozone's improving, which is good. I mean, obviously this, you've just said it's worse this year, but in a general, it's improving. Um, how, like, did it make that change? What's happened for it to start really bad, create a big hole, and now to start healing itself? So we had this problem that people thought they were doing a good thing and produced these various gases that we used as refrigerants and in solvents and propellants and even in insulation that contained um, halogen gases, including chlorine. Uh, they got released in the atmosphere and started accumulating in the polar regions and they catalytically destroy ozone. And it was discovered back in the 80s that suddenly we had this massive depletion of ozone happening above Antarctica. Um, so where most of the ozone is in the atmosphere, all that ozone was suddenly going away. And things were kind of lucky that at the same time as that was discovered, people were looking at the potential effects of these chlorine gases on ozone. And they realized quickly that it's these gases that we were using for our technological solutions that were causing the problem. And scientists and governments and politicians got together and said, we've got to ban these. We can't go on with this huge big ozone hole forming over Antarctica. So quite quickly, by uh, 1989, the production of these nasty gases was banned. Unfortunately, they've got quite a long lifetime. So they, once they're released in the atmosphere, they stay there for about 50 years. So we already had lots of, lots of these halogen gases in the atmosphere, all these CFC gases. Um, stop producing more of them, so stop releasing more of them into the atmosphere. And the nice thing is that so we took this action in the 80s, and about five years ago, it was confirmed that the ozone hole has stopped getting bigger, so it started to recover. We're thinking like 80s, which is way before you guys would have been born, these gases were banned, and it's only now, like 2018, that the ozone layer has started to heal. Yeah, I guess it takes right. a long time. Um, CFCs have been replaced with new chemicals like R32. That's a refrigerant for everyone who don't know. It's more long it's more safe. Is that still good for the ozone layer or does that still um, pump off emissions just less? So the replacement gases will do slightly different things. They should be fairly safe for ozone layer, I hope. Um, I don't know all the details on the all of the chemicals, but they should be fairly safe ozone layer. Then the other question is, what are they like as greenhouse gases? So. That's true. Yeah, because then the climate change. Yeah. There we go. We just created a PhD project for someone. <laughs> Future project. Um, so what were the results then of changing those CFC regulations? We did some research and... They are chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah. Halogenated things, yeah, terrible. Not nice. No, so because there was a lot of research going on already, 
when they were banned, there were already um, different substances that could be used instead that were much less harmful. But we still have large amounts of uh, CFC gases in the atmosphere, and it will take quite a few decades before they actually completely gone away. But because they are slowly reducing, the current estimates is that the ozone layer will heal in the next kind of 20 to 50 years time. So it's still quite a long time, but it's, it's healing. So there's some good news going on. That's pretty incredible. And so is your work um, kind of related to this, like finding solutions and healing the ozone layer? Would you want to speak a little bit on that, on what you're doing currently? So what uh, the work that I do is looking at how different natural sources affect atmospheric ozone. So it's linked to looking at this whole picture of what is happening with the atmospheric ozone. So on one hand, we have got this human-made problem that is very slowly fixing itself, or not itself, it's because of the action that we took. But because we've been so focused on the big problem that we generated with the CFC gases, we actually don't have a great idea what the natural variability in the ozone is, particularly in the polar regions. So that's where my work really comes in. So what I'm trying to do is figure out how um, things like the sun are actually influencing the polar ozone levels. And something that we discovered, so I had a great student um, doing her master's project. Emily, she's now in the US doing her PhD. You're listening to this, Emily, you're great, awesome. Um, she looked at 15 years worth of satellite observations and she actually discovered that the effect that sun has on our atmosphere has been able to kind of mute down or, or how should I say it? It's um, controlled some of the CFC effects in the last 15 years. So when sun's been more active, it's been producing gases in the atmosphere that have actually been binding away some of the CFC gases so they haven't reacted with ozone, which was awesome. We had no idea that was happening. So what I'm trying to do is kind of look at these natural factors and how they work with the human-made factors and what the implications then are for our climate. That is seriously incredible work. Also very relevant, you know, like choosing a problem that's actually applicable to what we're facing in New Zealand. I know maybe this sounds obvious, but it's different coming from the student perspective where we sometimes learn stuff and we're like, okay, what is what is the purpose of this? But to hear you speak about your research being applied to a problem and finding a solution is quite inspiring. Oh, thank you. It's, I think you find that in quite a lot of different fields is that your first years of study are really just kind of learning the basics and then particularly if you start doing postgraduate study, you suddenly go, oh, this applies to real-world problems and you can see, like, actual applications of the things that you've learned. How does the sun change? Because it's obviously got a life cycle, which I can let you talk about, but how does it, like, actually affect the Earth? Like, what are the major parts? Uh, so I'm the so biggest crazy. thing that the sun does for us is we basically get all of our energy from the sun. Um, if it wasn't for the sun and solar radiation, we wouldn't be here. There just wouldn't be energy for our climate. So we get um, 10 to 17 watts, so 10 to 17 joules per second of energy from the sun. We actually need that for any life on Earth to exist. But sun also affects us in other ways, like um, the solar wind I talked about also provides us quite a bit of energy. And we don't know 
all of those effects quite that well. That's what I'm doing my research. Um, but sun is like it's basically this ball of fire on the sky. Nuclear fusion is happening in the core, but it's not like a steady object. All stars have a life cycle. They live for billions of years and then die. That doesn't really affect us in our lifetime scales. But what does is different kind of activities. The sun has something that we call the 11-year activity cycle. It has a magnetic field that flips around every 11 years. And what that magnetic field does, it controls the solar wind I was talking about earlier. But it also has a bit of an effect for the amount of energy that we get. So between the solar activity maximum and minimum the amount of energy that we get it changes only a tiny bit like from solar radiation is about 0.1 percent but it still has effect that we can measure in the atmosphere so we can look at things like the amount of ozone or overall heating and we can see this small measurable effect from just that tiny effect the stuff like the solar wind changes a lot more within that 11-year cycle. And so is there much research into kind of like being able to utilise the solar wind or the sun power? Like I hear a statistic that there's more light that strikes the earth in an hour that we use in a whole year. Yeah. I don't know. Is there any any kind of research or potential applications of that? I think there must be quite a lot of research going on in the world when looking at this. So we've got this amazing amount of light. We should have more solar panels because it's basically free energy that's coming from the sun. We should utilize it better. Um, the solar wind is producing lots of energy as well, but we haven't figured out a way of actually harnessing it in any way. Um, there are estimates that the solar wind side is actually hitting Earth's magnetosphere. So we have this protective magnetic bubble that we call the magnetosphere. And that's actually collecting about 10 to 18 watts of energy. So 10 to 18 joules per second. That's 10 times more than we get from solar radiation. We just have not figured out any way of collecting that. Because it kind of deflects around the Earth towards the um, dipoles or the um, Antarctic regions, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we could, well, this is just a theoretic. Um, point of view, but we could probably harness it in space. Oh, we should, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I did have a, a question, and that is what happens if the solar winds are too strong for our um, magnetic um, field around the Earth? Is that able to break it, or is it...? So it, what it can do is it can kind of squeeze it in, so if we think of this protective bubble that we have, um, the solar wind produce, can produce more pressure and can squeeze it in. And we've got examples quite recently of what can happen. So we have a historic example of uh, the biggest ever observed solar storm. Um, and that was back in the 1890s, I think, no, 1859, um, this huge big storm. But... There's been stuff that's happened in the late 80s and in the 2000s. So kind of thinking of there's, I think probably the biggest like modern age thing that happened was in March 1989. 
because a big solar storm, it just caused this big, we call them geomagnetic storms if it causes all these crazy things in our magnetosphere. So we had this geomagnetic storm. Um, it was cold winter in Canada. And mm -hmm. the storm started 90 seconds later. The entire power grid in Quebec was gone. Um, How did that took, happen? So what these geomagnetic storms do is they generate large currents in our space environment. Those currents change magnetic fields and induce electric fields in the ground. Uh, this gets all physics-y. But then what we get is big currents that are flowing in any long conducting things like power lines and pipelines. The power lines are being the key. So these currents were running in the power lines and they ended up basically melting transformers in power stations. Wow. The so damage that was caused in those 90 seconds was worth uh, like 10 million US dollars. Jeez. Oh, so these solar so, storms are a, a big deal is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and we have got, yeah, we've got examples in Dunedin. So we've got a transformer station in halfway bush. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or gone past it. There is one that produces energy for us. Uh, they had a transformer failure because of a geomagnetic storm that was in 2001. And these are big pieces of kit that they don't like just have a spare on the shelf. They need to order it to be made to order. <laughs> so it takes that, a long time to fix them. Is that because we're closer to the South Pole? So we're more like susceptible to it or... Was that just that yeah. random? Yeah, so there's a, there are different factors that affect it, but one of the things is the fact that we are closer to the polar region. Yeah. yeah. I actually read online about the Carrington event. Oh, yeah, the famous one. Yeah, yeah. and how they were able to see um, auroras pretty much all over the world, wherever you were, and that was seriously bright. Which <laughs> it's pretty hard to believe now, but as What was the Carrington event? Carrington. Do you want to give a description, Henry? I, I don't really know much about it. I just know it was a big solar storm, but do you know much? So this this is the like the big event that everyone's looking at, how frequently are these happening. This was back in the 1850s. Um, so before our modern age, when we weren't that dependent on gadgets, but there was, so there was basically aurora all over the world that was observed. Uh, people were still using telegraph networks. Have you got an idea of those? So these big, long telegraph lines that we use to send messages. Normally, you need a battery to operate it. So what the operators did is they completely disconnected batteries and they were able to send messages onto telegraph lines because they had this big induced current flowing in the telegraph lines. If that happened now, I mean, we'd be in serious trouble. Um, there was some estimate of how much it would cost to fix the problems that we would most likely get if this Carrington storm happened now. And the estimates were trillions of dollars. So the financial cost was huge, but obviously we would have problems with uh, energy networks, communications, any IT staff, transport networks. We, we depend on so much, um, not like your smartphone, sending messages, the fact that we're talking over Zoom, yeah. but also kind of emergency services, all that banking, food production, everything would be affected if we had this Carrington storm happen now. 
is there any like preventative measures that people could take or like physicists can advise on like with your knowledge about the repercussions and what happens so the physics department in Otago actually has a big project on right now they're calling it solar tsunamis and they're working with people uh, from Transpower to see what we could actually do to try and protect the New Zealand power network if something like this happened there are lots of countries that know they are vulnerable are trying to make plans just to try and prevent big problems in the future. It's impossible to predict when these kinds of solar storms or geomagnetic storms would happen. But what we can do is can try and have protocols of if it's happening, what can we do to try and protect all of our technology? Can they get a little bit uh, or a little bit of a warning in advance because of the time it takes for the plasma to reach the Earth? Uh, yeah, so it might be a few hours, might be a few days. Yeah, which is oh, that's pretty pretty yeah. unpredictable. Yeah, we won't know much before that. To is follow off from that, because yeah. um, I was looking at both uh, solar storms, but then also the sun also releases solar flares. Yes. Have you looked into them at all in your? Um, they are often part of. Uh, the solar storms that I've looked at. So solar flare often happens as a result of, you know, I was saying that the sun has a magnetic field that flips. Mm -hmm. The different types of activity that sun does, like these big solar storms, which we call CMEs or coronal mass ejections and flares, are tied to the magnetic field. So basically what happens is at the start of this 11-year cycle, sun's magnetic field is nicely organized like a dipole um, and then it starts getting more and more tangled and it starts poking through the surface in, in funny bits and as it is getting tangled it can then kind of erupt and those eruptions produce a lot of energy so what a flare is is the photons or the light that is released in one of these eruptions and then the solar wind or the, the solar plasma, so electrons and protons and other charged particles are released as, as part of the solar wind. So this kind of mass. So we have radiation and mass. Um, the solar flares also have effects on us. So whichever side of Earth is facing the sun, the solar flares like a sudden burst of radiation, really energetic light. And it can affect communications. We use part of our atmosphere as a means of doing long-range communications. So basically, we have these radio waves that bounce between Earth's surface and what we call the bottom of the ionosphere. So there's this ionized part of Earth's atmosphere, and it produces the boundary for these waves to bounce between. So they bounce between the bottom of the ionosphere and the surface, and what these big flares do is they change the ionization in the atmosphere and suddenly affect how radio wave communications work and they can cause complete blockouts. Um, so certain systems rely on being able to use radio wave communications. And if you are not able to do that because of a solar flare, there's lots of problems. So there are different agencies around the world that are just monitoring, is there a flare going on? In the sun, if there is, send a message out as soon as possible to all the critical services to say you're going to lose communications, including communications with nuclear submarines, 
which kind of makes you worried. Wow. But nuclear submarines, yeah, they rely on getting the signal from home saying everything is good, don't do anything, just stay put. If we have a flare that blocks their communications, unless they know it's happening, they would go, oh, something must have happened. Um, do we release this nuclear weapon now? And I don't do that. So there are specific government services that are telling those operators there is a blackout coming because we've seen the solar flare. Do not unleash a nuclear war. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that there are people out there working on that know about this and are working on it to prevent it from happening. Oh, just to um to circle back to the fluorohydrocarbons because yep. we were talking before about how um, it was we discovered it as like humidity we discovered that mm. the refrigerators were causing damage and then almost miraculously like it seems like everyone's be able to come together and find a solution and work towards that and in the context of climate change and some of the issues that we're facing as this generation do you have any um like or why do you think it was so successful this particular story like if we look at the issues that we have with climate change and with the ozone hole situation um i think part of the reason it was so successful is because it was kind of um it was a relatively small thing that we were looking at like uh, small the ozone hole is huge but um, in relation to the parts of the problem, there was a limited number of them. So people were able to, I want to say, kind of see the big picture more easily. Whereas when we're looking at climate change, I think about the things that just the words climate change brings to mind. There's a thousand different things. And it can seem like, where do I start? What do, I, what do I limit? What do I do now? So I suspect that's part of the problem. The ozone hole story is, is painted as this huge, big success story, but it was, it was slightly easier maybe to deal with. Um, or maybe it was easier to get this political will because it was, okay, we just need to ban these certain gases. Whereas with climate change, yes, we should be taking way more action than we, than we are at the moment. But I have hope. But it's not just, okay, let's ban greenhouse gases, but we also need to now be dealing with what the consequences are going to be. So it can, I, I can understand why it can seem more complicated, but we should, we should be doing stuff already. Mm-hmm. We should have started, so we should be doing things now, we should be planning for the future. It's not one solution, though, for climate change. No, it's not. No. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like it was for the other one. Actually, something I learned in chemistry is that the fluorine is probably the worst chemical because if you mix it with anything, it's bad chemical. On its own, it's bad chemical. So they're kind of lucky that it was just one thing that was so terrible that they could change. Mm. Just change more. Yeah. Mm. And I think, yeah, just trying to relate it to how students or someone listening could help them solve their potential problems I think from my understanding maybe a reason it was successful is because and we talked about this a bit is that they had a solution like you said like they've banned it and that will be like the way out 
but then perhaps for climate change because it's less about we don't Our know solutions, what the though. solution is. There's multiple solutions. If everyone does their bit, it would probably be a different story. It's just a hard to say yeah. to everyone to do their bit. There's hope. Um, and which solutions are fair if you think of different nations. It's, yeah, it's more complicated. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing things. We have all these, like Henry said, there are multiple solutions and things that we should be doing. And we should all be doing the things we can do and are able to do as nations or individuals. But it's not like with the ozone hole, it's not one solution. It's just many things that we need to be acting on. Yeah. I think, yeah, I guess we've come to the end of our podcast episode. Um, Thank you so much for coming on, Annika, and we really appreciate it. And for all of our listeners, it's definitely, it's going to sound a bit different coming from a Zoom recording as opposed to in studio. Yeah, thanks for bearing with us. (laughs) Yeah, we're really, really grateful that you've come on the show and spoke and shared your wisdom. Yeah, I'm oh, sweating. I found that so interesting. That was so cool. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really nice to hear. Oh, everyone should study physics. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a, had a great time. Thank you, guys. Yeah, more than welcome. Yeah, so for any of our listeners that are curious about physics or any of the topics that we mentioned, um, we'll link the website to see the Southern Lights if you're interested in our description. Um, and otherwise, yeah, definitely check out the physics department at Otago or any. Yeah, Annika, do you have any final places or advice? Um, no, just do your research. If you're interested in Aurora, definitely go check it. If you're in Dunedin, you can absolutely see it. Just go check out the website. It also suggests where you can go in Dunedin quite easily to see them. Awesome. Well, thank you one last time, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, I hope all your lockdowns have been great. Just a reminder that the fourth, um, our fourth podcast is... We haven't chosen a guest yet, but because you guys are choosing the guest, so message in either a subject or a professor or a lecturer you really, really love. And, On our um, Instagram page. Yeah, Instagram. Yeah. Yes, people we'll, with choice. We'll cool. figure that out. Yeah, thank you. And we look forward to seeing you for the next episode, everybody. Thank you for listening. Bye. That was the Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.